Turn your Bibles to the Mark and Gospel, Mark chapter 9. We'll also look a little bit at Mark chapter 10, so be ready to turn your Bible there. Mark chapter 9. Sermon entitled, The Best Seat in the House. But before we can really understand the best seat in the house, I want to show you the worst seat in the house. Here we go. He's in the end zone. He's looking at his back of a scoreboard. I can't see that he's going to see any of the game. I don't know. Maybe you know uh, where it's the Eagle Elite. Look at that one. Boy, that's really good. That's at Fenway Park. Now, how would you like to bought your ticket, saved up for six months to go to the big ball game, and you get a green post to look at, Fenway Park. Or this is a favorite here at the USC football field. That guy might see a touchdown on one half of the end zone, but he's not going to see much of anything else, is he? There you go, Wrigley Field, the second worst seat in baseball. I don't know what the worst seat is, but I can tell you that that's surely a close second right there. You can't see anything but the outfield, can't see the diamond, can't see pitcher's mound, can't see first base, second base, third base. You just see... Kind of the outfield is what you see, so fly balls are your friend. Well, that's the worst seat in the house. None of us wants the worst seat in the house. We all truly desire to be in the center court seat or somewhere really close to the 50-yard line, don't we? And that idiom, the best seat in the house, the house, of course, is a word for the theater, and you need to know the royal opera always saves the best seat for the king and the queen, and thus the king and the queen get the best seat in the house. We feel a little, a little like royalty important when we have a really, really good seat. Now, I'm not making fun of you, and if you've done this with me, do not be embarrassed because I do it myself, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call myself out and all of us out. I'm guilty too. Ever have friends who go to a Dallas Cowboys football game or to a Texas Rangers game or to a college football game, and they start posting those pics or they start uh, sending out those shots to show you, look where I'm seated. Look at this. They'll be right there on the 50-yard line. Look at my seat. Or, you know, down on court side on a really big game in, in basketball. What they're saying is they want us to be envious of the view they have of all the action at hand. My sister who knows that I'll always fly economy class or whatever they call the miserable portion of the international flight. She works for a large company, and they provide her with a luxurious first-class suite when she's on an international flight, and she flies a lot. And without exception, she will always send me a snapshot. Man, oh, man, have you ever seen it up there? She has two screens, and it looks like a bed, not a seat. And she's got a little curtain wall she can pull to shut it out. And they're bringing her food all during the flight. And she knows good and well when she sends me that shot that her big brother flies stacked like cordwood back there somewhere in the back of the plane. Yes, when you and I have the best seat in the house, well, I want you to know it when I got that seat. And you want me to know it when you've got that seat. You wouldn't believe our seats, someone says, when they come back from the ball game. 
No, tell me about it. Tell me about that great seat. Yeah. The best seat in the house varies from venue to venue at Madison Square Garden. If it's a New York Knicks game, you want to sit courtside. They'll show all the celebrities sitting down the courtside where you can yell directly at the refs. That's a really good seat. Or if Adele is singing there in concert, you want to be close enough not to watch her on the big screen. You want to watch her smile right there face to face. We all, I do and you do, we all truly want the best seat in the house. Well, we're not the only ones. The disciples in our stories today are determined that Jesus is coming to his kingdom as Messiah that he is the liberating Messiah, and he's going to set up a kingdom. And each one of them, each disciple, wanted to be the greatest. Each disciple wanted the best seat in the house. Can we sit at your right hand and your left hand, they're going to ask today? When you're there on the throne, can we just be right there beside you, Jesus? Can we have truly the best seat in the house? Our passage today is in in Mark chapter 9, but I want to set this up as a trio of passages. This is the second time that Jesus mentions his suffering. And what you find in the gospel of Mark is there becomes a rhythm that whenever Jesus is talking about his suffering, his disciples are talking about who's the greatest. They are jockeying for a position. The first time is the chapter before Mark chapter 8 at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Oh, some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Some say you're Elijah, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he begins to, Jesus tells them about his suffering right there in, in chapter 8. And, and Peter rebukes that suffering, and, and then Jesus rebukes Peter. You remember that? Well, the one we're going to look at in detail is chapter 9. But before we get to the middle one, the second one, I want to skip over to the third one. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. Go look at verse 32. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road, 1032, going up to Jerusalem. Now in Mark's gospel, when Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified. Now in John's gospel, he's back and forth to Jerusalem, but not in Mark. In Mark, when he heads to Jerusalem, is to die. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Again, meaning he's done it in Mark 8. We're going to see him do it in Mark 9. Mark 10 is the third time. Again, he takes them aside to tell them what's going to happen to him. Say, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the hands of chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and they will spit upon him, and they will scourge him, and they will kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And James and John. Now, you understand, each time Jesus makes his suffering prediction, he gives more detail. Now we learn about all sorts of things, about spit and scourging and killing and mocking. And then verse 35, it's like, how tone deaf can you be, James and John? And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. You ever have a child do you that way? 
I want you to say yes to what I'm going to ask you. Would you just say yes? Well, I don't know. I got to know what it is. Whatever we ask of you, you just say yes. And Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may, we may sit in your glory, one at the right and one at the left hand of your kingdom. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, yeah, we're able. They're thinking Jesus is going into Jerusalem. They've ignored totally ignored all he said about being spat upon and scourged and crucified and rising again. They, have, they are tone deaf to that. They think he's coming to set up a throne. He's going to overthrow the Roman government, and he's going to straighten out Judaism, and he's going to reign as the Messiah of God. And so they say, hey, when you're right there in the middle, can one of us be at the right and one of us be at the left? And then they would have fought, of course, over who was at the right and who was at the left of his kingdom. Jesus says, can you, can you drink of the cup down to the dregs of death that I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the fire of crucifixion? And they said, yeah, yeah, we can do that. And Jesus said, yeah, you will. You will have to do it. Well, turn back to, to Mark chapter 9 for the middle time that this occurs. You see, even the apostles... We're pushing for position when it comes to be seated next to the Savior. When you set up your kingdom, they're saying in Mark 10, we want to sit one at the right and one at the left. We want, they're saying, the best seats in the house. In our story today, we have an account of bickering disciples. This is the second time. I showed you the third time. I've told you about the first time. This is the second time that Jesus makes a prediction about his suffering. It's the second time he's speaking about the cross. As you look at the Gospels, you realize that every time Jesus begins to talk about his suffering, that the disciples are too busy arguing over which one of them is the greatest to really understand what he's saying about the cross. They all want to ride shotgun when the Messiah takes his reign. Jesus and his disciples leave for Capernaum. That's when Jesus' disciples struck up one of those conversations that grows out of conflict. By now, they've been together for many months of ministry, and there's some tension amongst the disciples, and they're arguing over who is the best amongst the 12, who is the brightest amongst the 12, and who will get the best seat in the house when Jesus brings the reign and rule of God to earth. It might have started because in the chapter before, Jesus invited three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, to the transfiguration. They were chosen specially to come and watch Jesus glorified with some of the glory that he will experience in his kingdom and at his resurrection. And so maybe, maybe, maybe Peter, James, and John say something like this to the other disciples. Now, how can you think for one moment that you are going to have the seat at the right or the left hand? You didn't even see the transfiguration. Man, you wouldn't believe what we saw. We got a taste of his glory. And then maybe, maybe Peter looks at James and John and said, yeah, and did you notice amongst the three where he positioned me? Did you notice that? They are arguing over having the best seat in the kingdom of God. It was shameful bickering. Each disciple wanted to make sure that he got the best seat in the house. 
and they boast. They all stuck out their lips and they pout. There was serious emotional discord amongst the disciples at this part of the journey. And Jesus knows exactly about what they're speaking. Look at verse 33 of our text today. Look at the end of verse 33. He began to question them saying, what were you discussing back there? Hey, when we were walking to Capernaum, after I just told you about my suffering, I could hear you guys having a little tense conversation back there. What on earth are y'all talking about? Now, Jesus knew exactly what they were talking about. He knew exactly they were arguing over who was the greatest. He knew exactly what was on their mind. He just told them he was going to be delivered into the hands of men. They were going to kill him. He would rise three days later. Jesus is speaking about the most cosmic event in all of human history. And yet they're focused on themselves. I bet Jesus must surely be hurt. How could he not be? How can they think about themselves? How can they worry about their own egos when he's talking about the cross? At this point, they are dumbfounded. Jesus turned and said, hey, on the way, what were you guys talking about? What was on your mind? I, I didn't get it now. Exactly what were y'all talking about? Dumbfounded. They were shocked. No one to raise their hand and say, well, you know, I was, we were arguing, you know, we were, we want to know who's going to sit, you know, where. And they couldn't bring themselves to say it. There was so much tension amongst the disciples that you could have cut it with the proverbial knife. And Jesus grabs a moment of teaching even as you feel the silence of shame. I want us to feel that silence of shame in the text. Now, what were you talking about? They can't say a word. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? How many things have you or I been talking about as we follow behind Jesus, as we too are his disciples, and how many times could Jesus turn to us and say, hey, now what is it you were talking about? That we too would be dumbfounded by his questions. The shame would simply yield silence from us as it did from him. How many times have we been busy grasping to be great like the disciples and find at the end that Jesus has exposed our own egos? You notice the shame. The shame in this passage, it yields nothing but absolute silence from the disciples. They dare not utter a word. I hope you feel the irony of this passage. In fact, there's something of a tragic comedy here going on. Jesus, in chapter 10, he's making his way to Jerusalem. I told you in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he only goes to Jerusalem once. And when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified. So here's Jesus heading on his way to the cross, and they're bickering over who could be next in line, and they don't realize, though he's told them, that he's going to be crucified. Now, who wants to get second in that line? You see the comedy that the writers are giving us? He's going to the cross, and when it gets to the cross, they're not going to argue over who gets the best seat. They're going to run and flee. All of them are going to abandon him, and nobody will want the seat next to him when it's a thief and a thief 
at the right and left hand because his throne is the cross of Calvary. They're pushing. I, I think it's for a place of glory. They think they are. They're jockeying at, for a place of glory, and really they're going to a place of suffering at the passion of our Christ. We all want to be like those disciples, don't we? We all somehow deep down want to be great. What would we wouldn't give to sit in the places of honor at the table? We want that courtside ringside seat. I don't know what it is in your life. Maybe you'd give anything just be one rung up the ladder at your place of worship. Maybe to sit in your boss's seat. Maybe you'd do anything to be more beautiful or more being more handsome would make you happy. Perhaps more money would make you feel like you had finally arrived, or maybe what you seek is not so much the money, but the position of power. That's what's important to you. So we struggle. We struggle and we strive in life, each clawing ourselves to be king of the hill and leaving a wake of carnage behind us. Manipulating and maneuvering ourselves into our long-desired position. And even while we are grasping to be great, Jesus turns around and he says, Now, while I was talking about going to the cross and being crucified, y'all were having a discussion back there. Would you tell me what it was that was so important that you were talking about? I think Jesus knew fully well what they were talking about. And he was slicing a piece of the proverbial humble pie. He reaches for a child, verse 36. Now, I want you to notice the intimacy of the language. He set the child before them. He took the child into his arms. He's not just pointing out a kid over here. He picks the kid up. Now, children in those days, it's hard for us to imagine. We have totally turned the ship around on this one. But kids had no rights. A Jewish child was literally property of the father. The Jewish child had no rights. Nobody cared what children said. Nobody cared what children thought. They were in a complete authority of their household. They were literally the lowest member of a Jewish society, a child. And so Jesus grabs the one that's the bottom of the ladder and picks up that child. Imagine brushing the child's hair and laughing with the child and welcoming the child into the heart of God. It's the most generous display of humility that the king of the cosmos, the savior of the world, is interested in a nameless child out of the crowd. And in doing so, Jesus is making a statement about the nature of God. That God's love is most readily available and most accepted by those who are on the low rungs of the ladder. Where did you find the kingdom of God in this story? Where do you find the kingdom of God now? It's not in the most ostentatious, pompous people who are trying to draw attention to themselves. You will not find the kingdom of God there. It's not in that forceful, in-your-face styles of shrill, harsh self-presentation. No. 
It's in the lives of those that we consider the least among us, the lowest ones. The ones who fail to even register on the polls or the surveys. Maybe those who are absent in our everyday life. No greatness is found in those to whom the least attention is given. Maybe it's an abused child who lives a rootless life from bedroom to bedroom and home to home trying to find her place. Maybe it's found in the face of a teenager considering suicide in the face of an insistive clique of peers. Maybe it's found in an older gentleman who's now a widower and he's totally lost in life without her. And he's too proud to call his family and ask for help. What makes us grasp for greatness? It happens when you and I accept the measures of the world's success, money, and power, and position. It's when we become this terrible monster inside, this green, jealous, fighting, jockeying, posting up for position person like the disciples are doing when Jesus, he's talking about the cross and they miss it. We want to be number one. We really do. We want to be better than others. We want to be the best. We want to be great. And the irony is, in verse 35, Jesus turns it on his head and says, if anybody wants to be first, he must be last. If anybody wants to be first, he must be the servant of all. That's where greatness is found. I measure your greatness by your sense of servanthood, Jesus is saying. It's a measuring rod of success, and it's not the same ruler the world uses. I was, uh, it's really hard to imagine, I know, but I was really bad at basketball. I'd never have been good at basketball. I like watching it, and I collect basketball things. If you're not good at something, you watch it and you collect. That's, that's a pretty good key there. I was playing in a church league. They didn't pass the ball to me a whole lot. Good things didn't happen when I had the ball in my hands. And I got the ball, and I looked, there was nobody between me and the basket. And I was going to dribble down. I was going to lay that ball up. I didn't know it. It was the wrong basket, the wrong direction. I was about to score for the other team. And while I'm dribbling down there, I'm just a little kid. I'm dribbling down there. The whole crowd starts shouting. I think they're so excited. Here goes Howie's layup. Here he goes. Here he goes. And they're shouting, no, no, the wrong way, the wrong goal, the wrong way. No, no, no. I do realize it. They got so loud. I finally realized it. Something's not good here. And uh, nobody was chasing me. The other team was going to let me put it in the basket. And sometimes in life, certainly for these disciples, it's that moment when you realize you're headed towards the wrong goal. You're dribbling towards the wrong basket. And... Jesus shouts to us, he becomes a crowd, and he's saying to the disciples, no, 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 don't go that direction. You've been shooting at the wrong goal all along. If you ever do, put a basket, put a ball in the wrong basket, you realize it's not nearly as great as you thought it's going to be anyway. 
Humility is not self-hatred. Jesus isn't asking the disciples to hate themselves. It's self-forgetfulness. Pride is a concentration on ourselves and our place and our position and our power. Humility doesn't call for us to apologize for the qualities we lack. We don't have to deny the qualities, the good qualities that we possess. Beekner says true humility doesn't consist of thinking ill of yourself, but not thinking of yourself any differently than you think of everybody else. Don't think of yourself any differently than you'd be apt to think of anybody else. Two friends were meeting about a third friend, and one friend says he's a really humble man. The other guy replies, well, he has a lot to be humble about. What arrogance. What arrogance. The fact of the matter is all of us have a lot about which we need to be humble in fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What have you accomplished that God has not given to you? And if God is the one who has given it to you, then why are you boasting as if God is not the giver of the gifts that you have? Walk this earth in pride. And God will eventually give you humility. The only way for him to bring you into a state of humility in your life or in my life is to highlight our genuine weakness and our total absolute dependence upon him. And then we realize we've been running down the court to the wrong goal all along. We must not be like the disciples we must have some self-forgetfulness as we look at the Christ. Even his disciples missed all of the story of the cross three times. Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. Miss, miss, miss because they're fighting for position. John, Richard John Newhouse said this way. If you are half as important as you think you are, you'd be twice as important as you really are. Now think about that one. If you were half as important as you think you are, you'd still be twice as important as you really are. There's some pictures taken by the Voyager spacecraft. Now, I can't get numbers like this in my mind. When they take the pictures, they're four billion miles away. Four billion miles away. And the whole planet Earth, it's a photo of the whole cosmos, the whole planet Earth is one seventy-second of an inch. Now, I know what a sixteenth of an inch looks like. I can't go much smaller than that. But in this picture, the whole planet Earth, four billion miles away, is one seventy-second of an inch. And on that little dot, we're all on there. And all the people in China and India and Russia... All of us are in that little bitty dot in God's cosmos. Congregation, we're not as big as we think we are. The ancient rule of St. Benedict, there's a wonderful illustration of humility, which is the way of Christ. You remember Jacob's ladder, and we had that vision of angels ascending and descending, angels going up and down on the ladder. And the rule of St. Benedict, it is written that, without a doubt, 
We should understand that climbing up is achieved by humbling ourselves. And going down the ladder is done by praising ourselves or building ourselves up. Let us be drawn to this image of the ladder of humility. The only way up to the kingdom of God is to go down in one's self-estimation. The way to descend away from the kingdom of God is to try, like the disciples, to lift ourselves up. What, a, what an irony of Christianity. Everything is upside down. The rules of the game have changed. Whoever wants to be great must be humble, even as a child is humble. And whoever wants to be first of all must be servant of all. Putting ourselves aside and thinking about others. How was your day? Not how was my day first. What can I do for you? Not what can you do for me first. When we think about ourselves as great or being great or powerful, we act and we behave differently in our family and in public in such a way that we begin to smell like the disciples. So if Jesus turns around to you today, says, hey, when I was headed for the cross, what were you talking about back there? The humility ladder. To go up, you go down. To go down, you take yourself up. Jesus picks up a child and turns the whole world upside down. Let's pray. Oh, God, forgive us when we've been prideful. I see we're in good company with these disciples, even James and John. And Jesus, you lived out exactly what you've asked us to do. It's hard to imagine the creator of the cosmos washing dirty feet of disciples or taking time for the little children when the disciples shout, he doesn't have time for these. The kind of God who would stop and speak to a sinful woman at a well She's even the wrong race to garner his attention. The kind of God who picks out a throne that has splinters and a crown that has thorns. By going down, he goes up. And may we follow. 